Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is November the 16th. Uh, and the news uh, is actually fairly similar to what it was on uh, Friday the 13th. The, uh, there's still a lot of debate about the election. Uh, Trump continues to cling to power, if that's one way of putting it. Uh, there was violence over the weekend. I'm not sure how serious the violence was. Any kind of violence, I guess, is serious in Washington, D.C., uh, between Trump's supporters and opponents. Um, and of course, at the same time, in this surreal atmosphere, Biden's administration tiptoes towards power. There seems to be some suggestion this morning that the Trump regime is beginning to acknowledge that they lost the election. Uh, Robert O'Brien, Trump's NSA advisor, um, has acknowledged that uh, Trump lost. Uh, so it's increasingly looking as if the election results are becoming official. Um, the great question for me and for many other people is this is, is this an election crisis? Are we in a situation where, um, where the election is really up in the air or are we just going through some sort of weird Trumpian show to acknowledge that he's defeated? Uh, one person who knows the answer to this is Alan Hirsch. He's the author of a new book, A Short History of Presidential Election Crisis and How to Prevent the Next One. Um, Alan, uh, is 2020 the fifth crisis in the American electoral system, or is it just uh, the last episode uh, of, of, of the Trump reality television show? If those are the choices, it's the second now, actually, I tell people this is not an election crisis. It's a manufactured political crisis. An election crisis is one where after the voting is done, we don't know who won. And in the worst crisis in our history, which is 1876 and 2000, there was no reliable means for determining who won. But now we know who won. That's not really up for dispute. But we have a president who refuses to that reality and possibly is willing to go to great lengths to try to impose his own reality. And that's the crisis if there is one. It's not the election, which was actually very well administered and produced a fairly clear outcome. It's the aftermath where the president has chosen for political and personal reasons to try to create a crisis. If it's not a crisis of the electoral system, might it be seen, Alan, as a crisis of American democracy? Yes, in the sense that the Electoral College uh, creates a lot of these problems. However, uh, it, it seems to me we have a crisis of Trump. It, if anyone else were in his shoes, this election would be behind us. There would be a transition taking place. Uh, and we might be talking about reforming the Electoral College or expanding mail voting or this, that, or the other thing. But we wouldn't be talking about, is the guy going to 
Eve? Uh, is there going to be dual inaugurations or some other crazy political science kind of novel playing out in our country? Uh, but I think this crisis really uh, owes itself to the character of the person in the Oval Office, not to our electoral system, even though that system could surely be improved. Alan, one of the things I like about your book, and it is short, a very nice read, I just read it this morning, um, is it deals with the four previous crises. So let's let's go through them in order. Uh, you begin in 1800, um, and I stole these images from uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, I think you're allowed to steal from Wikipedia. That's one of the few places one can steal from these days. Uh, what happened in 1800, Alan? So that crisis traces itself back to a failure in the Constitution, which is under the original Constitution, electors did not elect a president and vice president. They had two votes for president. So Thomas Jefferson was understood to be a presidential nominee, and his running mate, Aaron Burr, was the vice presidential nominee. But all of the Republican electors voted for both of them. Their two choices for president. So Burr and Jefferson ended up tied for the most votes. So just by this quirk of the Constitution, there was no winner. And the Federalists in Congress decided to make mischief. They thought, you know, maybe we'll make Aaron Burr president instead of Jefferson. And 36 ballots in the House of Representatives later, they came to their senses and, and Jefferson became president. What is it about Burr? He seems to pop up everywhere in, in, in musicals, in presidential crises. You're talking about Hamilton, Jefferson? Burr. Oh, Burr, sorry. Um, well, it's true. He was involved, obviously, in the duel with Hamilton and in this kind of election duel with Jefferson. So let's move on, Alan. Uh, the next big crisis was in 1824, which in my mind is, is slightly more contemporary uh, because it involves uh, characters who are more contemporary. Uh, what happened in 1824? So the circumstance was also more contemporary in the sense that that could happen again. After the Burr-Jefferson business, the Constitution was amended to clear that up. But in 1824, plain and simple, there were multiple credible candidates for president. And Adams, Jackson, um, Henry Clay, Calhoun, Clay, Clay, right. And uh, therefore, no one of them got a majority of the electoral votes. So under the Constitution, when that happens, the election is resol uh, resolved by the House of Representatives. And what happened is Adams did not receive the most votes, either popular or electoral, became president because Henry Clay, through his support to Adams, arguably or allegedly in exchange for becoming Secretary of State, which he did become in what has be been called the uh, corrupt bargain. Is Jackson uh, the equivalent to Trump and Adams in some ways a, a Hillary Clinton, a, a pointy-headed intellectual? So there's some major differences between Jackson and Trump. Jackson was a, a brave warrior, whereas Trump avoided military service. And I think it's fair to say that Jackson, while he was uh, crude uh, by normal conventional presidential standards, I did not light a candle to this president in, in that regard. So let's move on, uh, Alan, to 1876, which seems to be the most complex and protracted of all the crises. It was. It bears a fair resemblance, though, to the 2000 election. 
in that it basically came down to three contested states. Of course, 2000 was just one. Florida in 1876 was one of the three. Um, and it was just not clear who won. There was also voter suppression and all sorts of shenanigans going on. This is in the Reconstruction era. But in order to decide who won those three states, Congress appointed a 15-person commission, which unfortunately ended up ruling on partisan lines, 8-7, on every question with respect to every state, as a result of which Rutherford B. Hayes became president. Although supposedly in exchange for promising not to uh, pursue aggressive reconstruction policies, so to withdraw troops from the South and so forth. So there may have been another corrupt bargain. One has to say that these election crises did not really resolve terribly well. It always seems to me, Alan, maybe I'm, I'm being unfair as an outsider, that when you peel away, when you scratch away what's happening in American politics at any level, you always find the original sin of race. The the crisis, as you suggest, of 1876 was very much about race, wasn't it? Oh, that's fair, yes. And um, there was, again, there was significant voter suppression uh, by uh, in, in the South uh, by the Democratic Party. Um, but yeah, I think you're quite right that race is our original sin and we continue to pay the price for it. Well, it's actually surprising reading your book that there weren't any crises for 126 years until 2000, a crisis which we're all, of course, quite familiar with, the, the Bush-Gore election of 2000. Um, you're suggesting that this was in some ways like 1876, the Bush-Gore Bush crisis? In the sense that it came down to deciding who won very close state. Obviously, Florida was a virtual tie. And the, we were exposed again. You said we had no crisis from 1876 to 2000. It was sheer luck. You know, we had close elections. If they were a little bit closer, we would have found ourselves in this crisis territory because we don't have a means for resolving these crises. And that is something we are seeing rear its head to some extent now. But before we get there, in 2000, both candidates laid claim to uh, Florida. And the question became whether there would be a recount to determine the real winner. And eventually, after a lot of litigation in state and federal court, the United States Supreme Court decided that there had been recounting enough and George Bush would become president. Not a very satisfactory ending to that crisis election. Well, certainly uh, for those of us on, on, the, on the Gore side, one of the things I took from your book and your, you know, the, the, the book uh, is you're clearly on the left rather than the right. But one of the things I got from your book was that when it came to Bush-Gore, neither side was particularly principled and, and they were using whatever arguments would enable them to win the election. Is that fair? That's completely fair. Um, I think the more egregious, egregious uh, violations of protocol were by the Republicans and ultimately by the United States Supreme Court. But at the beginning, Gore's lawyers asked the Florida courts not to do a statewide recount, but to do a recount in these selective Democratic heavy precincts. Um, so they were trying to game the system, too. They weren't as good at it as uh, the Bush forces. It's a bit chilling, actually, when I read your book, to imagine had this 2020 election been as close in the hands of, a, of a, um, an administration, a, re a regime, a group as, as corrupt and self-interested and brutal and, and uh, as, as Trump. I can't imagine what would have happened. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I think, and we still don't know what will happen, but I think we should be very grateful that uh, Biden's margin in Pennsylvania is non-trivial and growing. Ditto in Michigan and Wisconsin, these states that he won that were the closest are not all that close ultimately. They don't seem to be within cheating distance, as it were. Let's hope, Alan, anyway. Let's look again at the, the Electoral College map. It's pretty clear now. Uh, uh, according to the New York Times. Anyway, Biden wins 306, Trump wins 232. But one of the institutions now which is coming under fire from both left and right is the Electoral College itself. Um, more and more calls to abolish the Electoral College. Uh, Trump, of course, is trying to figure out ways uh, to, to break the system so that he, he benefits from the end of the Electoral College. There was a very good um, metric I saw about the influence of the Electoral College per vote, per capita. And of course, it's small states like uh, Alaska and Vermont uh, and Hawaii, um, uh, and then of course the Midwestern states, which seems to be doing very well. Uh, Alan, in your book, you suggest that in your view, as, as a presidential election scholar, there is a need to, at the minimum, reform the Electoral College. Is that fair? Totally fair. Um, so what you're talking about in terms of the disproportionate uh, influence of the small states and the, the value of being in Montana or Vermont where the Electoral College is concerned, as opposed to, say, California or New York or Texas, that's right. And the Electoral College is undemocratic, and that's obvious enough. But that argument has been made pretty much since the ink dried on the Constitution or before it dried. And that hasn't been enough to convince anyone. So I think we need to look at additional arguments. And the argument I make in the book has been overlooked. And that is the Electoral College is a recipe for crisis. It's also an invitation to hackers or other purveyors of fraud for a very simple reason. Usually, almost without exception in our history, the popular vote is fairly clear who won. And that's because out of 100, you know, when you have that many ballots, 60, 70, 80 million, it's very unlikely you're going to get a, a tie. So for example, in 2000, if you went by the popular vote, Gore beat Bush by 500,000 votes. That's not going, that's gonna be outside the recount margin, outside the litigation margin, but because of the electoral college, everything came down to one state separated by at most a few hundred votes. And that is what history teaches us. The Electoral College produces these squeakers, these elections which could turn on fraud, they could turn on litigation, they leave us not knowing who won, all of that on top of the fact that they can leave the person who got fewer votes winning. So there's no shortage of good arguments against the Electoral College, but I'd like people to focus on the fact that it produces crises, because nobody likes that. That's not a Republican point, a Democratic point, a right-wing, a left-wing point. Everyone should be able to agree that it would be good to have an electoral system where we have a reasonably clear winner most of the time. Uh, and I was intrigued by the arguments in your book about what we could replace the electoral college with. Is it fair that you're not in favor of a straight popular vote that you see? I'd be okay. some, you would I'm be, sorry. but you 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 would also be in favor of some sort of proportional representation when it comes to the presidential election. Yeah, so if we kept the Electoral College, but allotted votes proportionally, 
that would certainly be a lot might make a lot more sense than what we have. So just use as an example Florida in 2000. You had this credible crisis because one of these candidates was going to get 25 electoral votes and that was decisive. If you apportioned their vote according to the vote uh, their electoral votes according to the votes they earned in the popular vote, it would have been basically 50-50. And you know that that's true across the board. You wouldn't right now have well forget right now where you have a president who's determined to create a crisis. But uh, in general, I think proportional. If you're going to keep the electoral college, we should apportion the electoral votes. How realistic is that? Do you think the reform of the electoral college is it again another political issue where a party will do it if it's in their interest? Well, that's a big problem, especially because you need to amend the constitutions. You need not only need a buy-in from both parties, but you need three-fourths of the states. However, there is this very interesting movement going on nationally, this compact among states, where many states are agreeing that they will they have pledged to honor the national popular vote. They will make sure that whichever candidate won the popular vote nationally receives their state's electoral votes as long as other states do the same thing. And if you get enough states agreeing to do this, that total 270 electoral votes, you've gotten rid of the electoral college without formally getting rid of it. And I think right now they're up to 200, 200 electoral votes. So it is possible that will happen. You mentioned, Alan, the amendment of the constitution. And I know you also believe that the constitution needs to be amended or added to in terms of some sort of caveat, some sort of provision for these crises over the election. Is that fair? Yes. So in 1876, you had the election decided by this ad hoc commission. In 2000, you had this election decided by the United States Supreme Court. Both of those were sort of ad hoc solutions. They, no one was really sure how to figure out who won, and they cast about that's where we ended up. We need a permanent method of resolving these uh, crises, and one that doesn't commit or doesn't suffer the same flaws that we saw in 1876 and 2000, which was basically partisanship, as well as someone making it up as they go. So I propose what I call a presidential election review board, which would be a tripartisan commission, a permanent commission, consisting of Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and people chosen because they had a reputation as being bipartisan or bipartisan and nonpartisan, and they would be empowered to resolve all election crises and empowered to implement whatever remedy was necessary, even a revote in a very last resort. But imagine today where Trump is going all over the country filing these lawsuits, hoping to pick off a state here or there, create a crisis here or there. If instead of doing that, you had the whole thing in the lap of a board which existed, its whole mission was to handle these sorts of things. Although knowing Trump, he would no doubt claim that that commission was made up of anti-Trumpian elites. I wonder if there was a, a, a structural reform of the electoral college system. Do you think that might also begin to result in the, in, in, in the cracking up of these archaic political parties? that the Republicans, for example, would split between a Trumpian populist wing and a, and a, and a country club wing, the, the, the Dems would uh, split between a, a sort of a Biden centrist and an AOC leftist. Uh, could you see, could you imagine that? It is, that is a concern, 
that if we got rid of the well, it's not a concern necessarily. It might actually, in my mind, it might actually be a good well, thing. That that might be. It, it does depend how you view the two-party system. Um, but that that really is a subject unto itself. Yeah, certainly a subject which perhaps we can revisit. Uh, finally, Alan, you know, it's your job as a constitutional scholar to to, to give everybody warnings, but would it be also fair to say that in 2020, American democracy and the electoral system has actually stood up pretty well, that there were a lot of fears that the whole thing was just going to break down, there was going to be civil war or constitutional, a, a profound constitutional crisis, but none of these things have happened. So I agree with you that certainly the election machinery, even in the face of a pandemic, uh, held up extraordinarily well. I agree with that. Uh, but before giving a definitive answer to your question, I mean, maybe we could revisit that in a month. I'm still just a little bit concerned with how things play out. Although if they don't play out well, it won't be the fault of the system. It will be the fault of those who seek to exploit it. Well, the markets have just collapsed, Alan, Having after you said that. I was quite <laughs> confident that things were working out and that we were going to have a an uncontested Biden presidency. But perhaps according to Alan Hirsch, the coast is not clear. Certainly, if you want to understand this fascinating subject uh, of presidential election crisis, his book, his new book, A Short History of Presidential Election Crisis and How to Prevent the Next One is a central reading. Short, sharp, excellent. Uh, Alan, you're stuck in this weird COVID times in uh, in late November 2020 in Williamstown, Massachusetts. I know you teach at Williams. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading in these weird times? I would recommend a book called These Truths by Jill Lepore, a Harvard professor. Very readable, but uh, in-depth, comprehensive, and engrossing account of American history with an emphasis on uh, things that are relevant to us today. And it also has the advantage, it'll keep you busy for a while, because even though it's readable, it is large. Well, Jill has an open invitation to the show. I thought she was going to come on, and then she didn't. So, Jill, if you're watching, I will look forward to having you on the show uh, in the not-too-distant future. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.